Hey, y'all. Real quick before I hit play on this episode of Familypreneur for you, I want to be sure that you know that I have a brand new podcast available for you to check out. It's called Just Marketing, and you can find it on this podcast platform. Go ahead and search for Just Marketing and hit subscribe so you don't miss anything. Then come back here and listen to this episode of Familypreneur. It'll still be here waiting for you. Welcome to Familypreneur, the podcast for parent entrepreneurs raising kidpreneurs. It's time for your weekly dose of inspiration and actionable tips to build your business and find better balance, all while strengthening your family. And now we'd like to introduce your host. She's my mom and the bomb.com, Meg Brunson. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 110 of the Familypreneur podcast. We are recording this podcast a little bit differently because I'm recording it in video as well as putting the audio on with the podcast. And the reason behind that for today is because I feel like this information is so super duper important that I really want people to be able to consume it in whatever way means the most to them. So if you are listening on the podcast, I want to welcome you to the podcast, whether you are brand new or a returning listener, I'm happy to have you with us today. If you're a podcast listener, I encourage you to go to that podcasting platform that you're listening on and hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss another episode. If you are watching this video on YouTube or watching it on the blog and reading along, then I want to thank you for spending time with me that way too. I would love to have you subscribe to the YouTube channel, get on my mailing list for the blog, and and go from there. There's lots of ways to consume content from me and to stay in up-to-date and involved with the newest Facebook updates as they roll out, as well as other familypreneur-related content. So we know that Facebook is always changing, but every year, the biggest updates are revealed at Facebook's annual developer conference, F8. I knew, based on all of the chatter and the social media trends of recent months, that this year's F8 was going to bring big updates And boy, was I right. Mark Zuckerberg himself, in his opening keynote, announced that this year, this year is the um, biggest changes to the platform that there have been in over five years. So this podcast episode, this post, this video is going to share my top 10 takeaways from F8 2019. It's also important to note that this was a two-day conference, jam-packed, full of sessions and workshops, and I can't possibly cover everything in one post, so I'm going to continue to cover F8-related content in the coming weeks and months. And of course, I put out weekly marketing content every Monday that will reflect changes as they roll out, but this is my, my top 10 takeaways. Also, as you may know, I have an entire course on Facebook marketing, and as promised, the course is getting a major facelift as all of these new changes are rolling out this year. So if you're one of my existing students, then there's nothing you need to do. The changes will roll out as they're available, you have lifetime access to the course, and you are all set. If you're not already a student of Ready, Set, Add, which is my course, then you'll want to head over to readysetad.com and get on the wait list so that you're notified as soon as enrollment opens back up in August. All right, so F8. It opens with a two-hour keynote, and Mark Zuckerberg speaks first and for about an hour of that time. 
During that that talk from Mark, he rolls out some of the most exciting updates to the platform, and he opened the keynote by revealing the theme of 2019, privacy. Now, Facebook has come under fire for some data breaches recently, and while Facebook is focused on ensuring that your data remains protected, it's not the full extent of the way in which they see privacy reflected throughout the platform. So Facebook has identified that users of the Facebook platform and the family of apps, including Instagram, WhatsApp, and Messenger, actually prefer increasingly private interactions. So that's going to be a theme that you're going to see throughout this top 10 list. Now let's hop into it. Number one, Messenger Lightspeed. Zuckerberg mentioned that if he could go back in time and start Facebook again from the ground up, he would do so by focusing on Messenger, which is super interesting. They're calling the newest upgrade to Messenger platform Messenger Lightspeed because it's twice as fast and seven times smaller than the current app. So their vision for Messenger is that it will be fast, simple, reliable, and secure. And let me tell you, the demos looked amazing, especially where speed is concerned. So there are 20 billion messages currently being sent between people and businesses every year. And 50% of people are more likely to do business with companies that they can message. So if you're a marketer, you really have to be paying attention to the Messenger platform. Number two is also related to Messenger. It's the Messenger desktop app. As if Messenger itself couldn't get cooler, Facebook is creating a Messenger desktop app. So it's going to be a separate app for Messenger, similar to what you currently have on your cell phone. There's going to be one for desktop as well. And that's not really the cool part. The cool part is that this new Messenger app is going to include Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. It's going to allow you to seamlessly message from any device from within one central hub. How amazing is that going to be? This update is going to make it so much easier to include all the messaging platforms that we're active on across the Facebook family of apps. Number three has to do with well-being and the new app and website. So one of the breakout sessions I attended was super interesting, and it was on the topic of well-being. We know that social media can trigger a slew of negative emotions, and Facebook has researched how people's interactions on the platform impact their mood. So I've said before that Facebook is concerned with the user experience, but it's not just time spent on the site. It's actually the user's well-being that is of concern to the platform. So what they found is illustrated in some images that if you're listening to the podcast, you're going to have to scoot over to the show notes to take a look at. But I will describe the images, um, what they show. So the first image. The first image is of a chart that shows the reported feelings that people have after they've read 50 or more posts from their acquaintances. So simply reading posts from acquaintances caused a statistically significant increase in negative mood. Now, before I go too much further, let me back it up a bit. The columns on the bar graph are as followed. Number one, satisfaction with life. Number two, positive mood. Number three, social support. Four is stress. Five is depression. 
Six is negative mood, and seven is loneliness. So these are the, so these are the seven feelings that Facebook has um, monitored through this research. So when you're reading posts from your acquaintances, simply reading those posts, you actually have a significant increase in negative mood among Facebook users. So that's interesting, number one. The next thing, when you are receiving comments on your posts from acquaintances on the platform, so when a user posts something and receives 50 comments from acquaintances, they actually report an increase in feelings of social support and a decreased feeling of loneliness. So that's really interesting too, right? That comments result in positive feelings, that feeling of increased uh, social support and decreased loneliness where just scrolling through acquaintances' posts actually results in an increase in negative mood. Now they took that comments information and they kind of up-leveled it a bit. They looked at what happens to users when they receive 50 or more comments from close friends. So this is different from the previous stat, which look at acquaintances. This is looking at close friends. So when we shift those comments from acquaintances to close friends, the results are astonishing. Users feel an increase in satisfaction with life, an increase in positive mood, an increase in the feeling of social support, and decreased feelings of loneliness. Okay, so this is some of the data that Facebook has collected And they're analyzing this data to determine what they should be, what decisions they should be making as far as the algorithm. So what does this all have to do with the new app and website? Well, from a design perspective, not much. You'll notice a new logo. It's a brighter blue. It's um, instead of the square, it's a circle and a lighter interface. The, The background is much more white. It's like brighter than it used to be. And the reactions, like the likes, Um, ha-has, hearts, they have some additional animation added to them. But on the back end of things, how the algorithm is optimizing, that's where this well-being research is important to keep in mind. So in the intro, I talked about the shift to more private conversations, and this is part of the reasoning behind that. When people feel close to others who are interacting with them, they feel better about themselves. So Facebook wants to provide more of those opportunities, and it's ranking those opportunities higher in the newsfeed. It's also why when it comes to newsfeed rankings, Facebook is favoring meaningful conversations and discussions over other forms of engagement, like liking a post or sharing a post. So now let's move on to number four. This is a direct quote because I felt like it was powerful enough that we needed a direct quote. Communities as central as friends. So Mark Zuckerberg compared the Facebook of today in the past five years to a town square, right? Like if you imagine your timeline, just enough people to fill a Times square, that's who you're going to see in your timeline. But the Facebook of the future is more like a living room. It's more intimate conversations, more private. So over 400 million people are currently in groups And Facebook has announced a prioritization of groups in the newsfeed going forward. 
For this reason, you may have already noticed some additional promotion of groups on Facebook's part as they're trying to encourage users to discover new groups that are a good fit for them because they recognize all that well-being research and know that people will feel that sense of community and social support within groups that are likely to generate those comments and relationships. So this leads me to a question I get asked all the time. Should you have a group for your business? Now, it's been asked of me frequently for years, but now it's being asked even more frequently because people are hearing that Facebook is prioritizing groups, so they're automatically thinking that means I need a group. I want to say that a page is still 100% necessary, and having a business page should always be come before having a group. You need that Facebook page in order to advertise and to represent the storefront of your business on the platform. Once you have that element in place, then you can consider starting a group. But remember that participation in groups ran by other people can be just as beneficial as building a group of your own. So I encourage you to do both. Now, the fifth thing on my list is also related to groups. It is some additional group updates. I actually um, kind of put two in one here because these are two updates that are happening within groups, and each one is kind of specific for the type of groups that are going to be interested in this update. So the first update has to do with health support communities. So these are groups that might be formed around people who have similar health concerns, fibromyalgia support, or cancer support, or something like that. These health support communities are going to gain a button. So where you make your post, you know, you type in your post, and then there's a post button. Right next to that post button, there's going to be a new button that allows you to request anonymity with that post. This way, you can ask a question, but you can actually deliver that question to an admin, and the admin will post it on your behalf so that you can remain anonymous. I know I see this happening a lot in mom's groups that I'm a part of, where a mom will actually send a private message to an admin, request that they make a post, um, keeping their you know name out of it so that they can remain anonymous, and then the post gets put through. This is a much more streamlined way to preserve anonymity and will allow the person to get their questions answered without putting their face and their name on blast. So I really like that. I'm not sure how that's going to be rolled out, you know, if it's only going to be in groups that have that type of health support or not. We're going to kind of have to wait and see because I think that that feature can be beneficial in a variety of different groups, not just medically related, moms groups as well, for example. Now, the other group update that's really exciting is that um, shopping communities. So these are groups that are formed around shopping, whether they're buy-sell trade groups or groups for crafters or groups for clothing um, sales. These shopping communities will now have the ability to support shipping for orders placed that are not local. I feel like this is huge because right now if you're doing transactions within Facebook, you have to have some other type of platform to handle the shipping. And a lot of people I know do have those 
um, infrastructures in place. But if you don't, shipping is coming to Facebook groups for shopping. So that is my number five, the two changes to groups, the health support communities getting the um, request of anonymity, and then shopping communities getting the shipping capabilities. Now let's move into number six. I'm trying to keep this rolling because some of these updates I know are kind of long. Number six, I want to talk about stories. Another trend that has remained consistent from last year is the focus on video. This year, the focus is on much shorter video clips, specifically in the form of stories. So stories are big on both Instagram and Facebook, and those stories have been on Instagram since 2016 and on Facebook since 2017, they're still not used or understood by some of the older generations on Facebook. And I use older loosely, as I too fall into that camp, and I'm only in my mid-30s, but stories are here to stay, and they're really important right now. So if you're not using them, it's time to start experimenting, or you're going to get left in the dust because they are taking off. So I'm going to tell you about the updates, and I'm going to give you a couple quick tips if you're not already using stories, just so you kind of know what to expect once you get in there. So for the updates, they are rolling out what's called create mode. So this will now allow you to start with a blank canvas and create a story with a solid background instead of photos and videos. They're also rolling out donation stickers. So if you're working with a nonprofit and want to raise money, that's going to be a really solid option for you. Now, if you're not already using stories, here are a couple quick pointers mentioned in one of the breakout sessions on stories. So stories, what they are, are full screen um, experiences on either Facebook or Instagram, and they're shot in portrait orientation. So that's vertically. Now, 82.5% of visitors to video-centric websites are holding their phones, their smartphones, in portrait mode. This is just the natural way for people to hold phones, and I feel like video creators really never saw this coming, right? Because televisions, movie screens, they're all horizontal. But now, with people consuming content on the go, it's vertical, and it's also Um, short and succinct. So you want to split your story into multiple scenes because the top performing story ads, they have these short, succinct scenes. So you're going to want to experiment with fast-paced and bite-sized clips within your stories. Some stats. 50% of people have visited a website to shop for a product or service as a result of seeing it in stories. That's huge, one in two people. And 31% have physically gone into a store to shop for something after they saw it in stories. (laughs) Physically gone into a store, that's big. Like, that's love right there, right? Because you can buy almost anything online. Now, 60% of businesses on Instagram stories are using interactive elements monthly. This includes things like polling stickers. We talked about donation stickers as something new that's coming out. Polling stickers are a great way to crowdsource insights or even run contests. When it comes to sticker usage, though, I really want to encourage everybody, and again, this came directly from one of the Instagram story sessions, to use stickers authentically and strategically. They have done a bunch of research, and there's conflicting data about whether the use of stickers in your stories 
directly influences conversions or not. So the best practice recommendation is to only use them if it's relevant to your message and audience. And I would say don't overdo it, right? Just do what's necessary to get your point, to get your feelings across. And of course, always be testing things. Keep an eye on what your audience is responding to because that's going to determine what you should be doing going forward. The big takeaway is that you need to play more with stories. Stories is going to be big. It is going to be important. And you need to get used to using it both organically and when you're running ads. Now, number seven, we are going to take the stories, you know, shift a little bit into Instagram and talk about some of those Instagram updates. The biggest announcement surrounding Instagram this year is that they're experimenting with removing likes from the publicly available metrics. So what this means is that you'll be able to go into your analytics and see how many likes the image you posted yesterday received. But you will not be able to go to my Instagram account and see how many likes my images are getting. Now, I'll tell you, this isn't a change that I'm at all worried about. I think overall, it's in the best interest of everybody. First of all, it's important to remember that Instagram is a platform that really caters to the younger generation. I'll tell you, my 11-year-old has classmates who are on Instagram, and I'm friends with um, one of my friends who has a similarly, similarly aged daughter. I'm friends with her daughter on Instagram. So there's a lot of younger kids that are using this platform, and social media is having profound effects on these younger generations who continue to get caught up in social media being a, a popularity contest, and they're getting bully- bullied. And this one change on the part of Instagram, it's not going to change bullying. It's not going to get rid of it. It's certainly not. But it may help. So Instagram really wants people to worry less about vanity metrics and focus more on building the connections that will really improve everyone's well-being. Their concern about bullying is just a further extension on this overall concern with well-being as well. Now, as a content creator, I'm also excited about their announcement that they're going to allow creators to access Instagram shopping tools and link to products that are being represented in their stories. So this is going to be really great for influencers of all sizes, whether you're a big influencer or a micro influencer. That means if you're doing, um, if you're doing like an influential campaign, with Reebok, for example, and you're wearing a pair of Reebok shoes, you can actually uh, use Instagram shopping tools to link directly to those Reebok shoes so that your your audience can just go and buy the shoes directly from your Instagram promotion. Isn't that amazing? I feel like that's going to be so cool to play with. Now, number eight, I want to uh, put a disclaimer here. Whether you are married or not, I want you to listen to number eight, Okay. So number eight is Facebook dating and meeting new friends. Again, even if you're married, give this a listen because there's some, some stuff in here that's going to be relevant even if you're not interested in dating. So last year, Facebook announced their dating app. It's a totally separate feature that you have to opt in to use. So I want to rest your mind at ease that you're not going to be automatically added to the dating you know site. You're not going to be bombarded with requests to be, you know, dated or whatever. And I'm, to be honest, I'm one of these statistics, right? I met my spouse online. It wasn't through Facebook, but it was through a dating website. So I kind of think it's a, a good idea since it is totally optional. 
Anyhow, Facebook dating launched last year in five different countries, and it's rolling out to the United States later this year. Along with that tidbit, they're also announced two really cool other features, one of them that's totally relevant, even if you're not interested in dating. So the first feature um, has gotten some press coverage. You may have already heard about it. It's called Secret Crush. I think it's a cute and fun way to notify someone within the dating interface that you have an interest in them. So this is within the dating app, and it's totally separate from Facebook. It's totally optional. And how it works is if you have a person, up to nine people actually, that you're interested in dating on your friends list, you can add them to your list of secret crushes within the Facebook dating app. They will only get notified if they also happen to indicate that you're one of their secret crushes, which means they're also using the Facebook dating app, and then you'll both get a notification that there's been a match made. So I think it's kind of fun. Facebook is not going to reveal your secret crush unless they have indicated that you are also their secret crush. I hope I said that right. (laughs) And I think it's kind of fun. Now, of course, that's not something I'm interested in because I am happily married, as I know some of you are. So the other thing they are rolling out is that you have the option to leverage a platform that they are calling Meet New Friends. I kind of love this. Meet New Friends is basically taking the dating app and opening it up to platonic friendships. So it's separate from the dating app, but it's modeled after the dating app so that you can find friends. Right now, we do a lot of meeting new friends in groups or even by friend requesting people we haven't met in real life, but we might have friends in common with. And this can change all that. So with this feature, you can opt in, like the dating app, it's totally optional, and search for people who are looking for a friend. So maybe you just moved to a new city, or maybe you're the first of your friends to have a baby and you're looking for a play date with another mom. Or maybe you really want to go to a concert, but you'd prefer to have somebody to sit with, you know, and chat with platonically so you could find somebody who was interested in the same concert that you were interested in and buy your tickets together. So something like this would be perfect for those examples or or something similar. I thought it was kind of cool. Now, number nine, responsible innovation. There was a strong focus on what Facebook called responsible innovation, which means that they want to take a proactive role in ensuring that the platform is clear of harmful content, misinformation, and is safe and aligned with the well-being of the user. This means they want to keep the platform basically clear of spam, fake accounts, violence, hate speech, terrorism, bullying and harassment, adult nudity, and child exploitation. I really think it's important that we understand how Facebook works and why it's doing the things that it does so that we can not only craft our content appropriately, but we can speak to that if somebody has concerns, right? So believe me, I know how frustrating it is to have a photo that has no humans in it removed for nudity. It has happened to me. (laughs) But we appeal those decisions and we go on with our day knowing that it's those same systems that are preventing us from seeing inappropriate content on the platform all of the time. They're not trying to frustrate all the people that are using the platform appropriately. They're just trying to keep it clean from the, the violating content. 
So again, on the video on the blog, you'll see a chart. It's a chart that shows the percentage of violating content that was removed before people reported it in the following areas. So the areas from left to right on the chart, when you go to the page, you can see it, are spam, fake accounts, nudity, violence, child safety, hate speech, terrorism, and harassment. Now, just to describe what this chart looks like, it's almost 100%. Like, it's the the top 90 percentages for spam, fake accounts, nudity, violence, child safety, and terrorism. So the only ones that are significantly less than 90% are hate speech and harassment. And these are areas that Facebook is consistently trying to get better on because they want to remove this stuff before anybody ever has to see it or be affected by it. And that's really what they mean by responsible innovation. They want to innovate ways to to be responsible for the content that's being shown on their platform. So while it does stink if you're one of those victims of the mistakes, it's reassuring to see how much of that violating content they are effective in removing, which makes the platform a more positive experience for the vast majority of users. I also have a picture on the blog, on the video, that shows a timeline breakdown of how they've been able to proactively remove so much of that content. So it all starts with um, it all started with keyword matching, right? So they would the example on the image is drugs, it's marijuana, which I know is legal in many states, but it doesn't really matter because it's prohibited on Facebook. So they used that because it was an easy example. So it is prohibited on Facebook regardless of what the laws are, just like tobacco is also prohibited on Facebook even though it's not illegal. Anyhow, so it starts with keyword matching and they talked about having, you know, a, a huge list of words that relate to marijuana, um, pot, etc. And when they see those words in conjunction with, you know, obviously pot could not be drugs or it could be drugs. So they're, it's looking at the keyword matching to see if it's flagged as something that's related to violated content. Then as people got smarter, right, because people will always try to find a way to beat the system. So Facebook has to continuously up their game too. So the second step was that they used computer vision to analyze images. And they showed a really interesting um, comparison, a picture of marijuana versus a head of broccoli. And it was a specific kind of broccoli. I can't remember. Um, But they did look very, very similar in these pictures. And Facebook is using these computer vision programs to analyze what the images are and then flag the ones that look like prohibited content. So it started with keyword matching, then it evolved into computer vision, and now it gets really super techy. And they're using um, nearest neighbor manifested expansion and multimodal understanding. I'm going to be honest. It got super techy, and I don't have a really great breakdown of how that has developed, 
But I will tell you that it has to do with a lot, a lot, a lot of research and user-generated information. And it includes looking at things like um, video and audio tracks. So it's really just a constant evolution of Facebook training its system with more and more ways to identify this violating content and get it out of our news feeds, out of the platform before other people see it. Just really interesting to know how that process works. Now, number 10, thanks for sticking with me to the end. This was probably my favorite breakout session because it was super interesting to me. It was about how Facebook uses data for good. So in the beginning of this episode, this video, this post, (laughs) I talked about the data breaches of the past, which have resulted in a lot of uproar and upset over the amount of data that Facebook has access to and what they're using that data for. Oftentimes, people are fearful that the data is being sold or that it's going into the hands of corrupt people who are going to use it for harm. And while I'm sure that's not Facebook's goal, we do know that hackers exist and we rely on Facebook to take measures to ensure that our data is secure, um, which I believe that they are trying to do. But that's a whole that's a whole other a whole other episode. So I want to share a little glimpse into how Facebook is using data from its users for good by teaming up with humanitarian organizations during times of crisis. So Facebook has created what they call disaster maps. These serve to leverage the data that Facebook has in order to answer four important questions in times of crisis. One, what areas are affected? Two, Where are people evacuating to and from? Three, where has power and connectivity been disrupted? And four, where have displaced people settled? Right? So those are four really important questions whenever there is any sort of disaster or crisis. So Facebook is able to provide this data because it's so big and it has such a strong user base throughout the world. At the conference, they actually revealed that 71% of the global internet population is using the Facebook family of apps in some way. That's astonishing to me. That's huge. So here is how some of that data is used through disaster maps. I have three examples of different types of disaster maps, including a picture of the maps and a breakdown of what they do and how they're helpful. So if you want to see those pictures, again, head over to the show notes, head to YouTube, watch the video, read the blog, um, however you prefer to consume that visual content. But I will describe it for you now. So the first is a Facebook population map. So what this is, is they're able to show you where people are signing in to Facebook. And the picture that I have as an example is an example from the campfire that affected Paradise, California in 2018. So the picture on the left is the day before the campfire, and you'll notice that most of the area is yellow because that's kind of the the average, the general expectation. Blue, however, represents large decreases in Facebook population, and red represents large increases in the Facebook population. So in the example I have, 
you can see that in the second image, the image that happened after the campfire, there was a huge, like a blue spot all around paradise because people were not signing in there and they normally do. So it was a huge decrease in Facebook population in that area. And you see red spots surrounding Chico and Oroville, which are two other California cities, I hope I'm saying them right, um, that are kind of nearby to Paradise. So with those red areas, you can see that that's where people are signing into Facebook, like there's an increase in Facebook population more than normal. So by this map alone, you might start to hypothesize that people from Paradise are going to those two cities in order to escape the fires, right? Well, it doesn't end there because Facebook also has what's called movement maps. And these are super interesting too. So the movement maps allow us to better understand the trends that are identified in that population map because they're able to to not only look at where people are signing on, but they're able to look at like the the profiles, right? So they're able to see that people who normally signed on in Paradise are now signing on in Chico, for example. And that's exactly what this map shows is that the the thickest line, the most movement from Paradise is actually to Chico. There was over a 500% increase in, in movement from Paradise to Chico than typical. So it really shows you at this point, this map helps you, helps you really understand that that's where evacuees were heading as they were going to Chico. So based on this map, we could interpret that, you know, that the red area surrounding Chico is the evacuees, but the red area in Oroville, that could actually be relief workers that are coming in from other cities to help, right? And we could, of course, further analyze these maps to confirm that hypothesis, but that's not what I have pictures of. So I just want to explain how you could interpret it. The third type of map they shared with us is called a network coverage map. And this um, looks at the like cell, like network coverage, like the cell coverage of an area. So the example that we have is from a volcanic eruption in Guatemala in 2018. So on this map, the green areas are the ones that have the strongest connectivity and they have the most active cell towers, whereas the orange has some connectivity and then red and white has little to no coverage. So this shows us a before where most of the area is kind of a pale yellow. There's some orange spots. There's a little green area. And there's one like sliver that's, um, that's like a dark orange. Not quite, not quite red, but a dark orange. So it's got some, some poor coverage in there. Now, after the volcanic eruption, it is, it is a huge difference right? Like that orange area expanded dramatically. The dark orange expanded. There's now a dark red and there is a white, there are white patches where there's absolutely little to no connectivity at all. So that is important to know. Now, why? How do humanitarian organizations use this information? They use it in two ways. First, they need, they use this to see who lost coverage. They 
once they know that, like those people who've lost coverage, we have to believe that they may not know what to do, right? Because they're not getting alerts and updates. So they don't really know what to do. They aren't able to tell their family and friends that they are safe. They're totally disconnected and in a, a state that we're not sure what they're dealing with. We can also see where network coverage remains strong so that those ground-level response efforts can be planned appropriately in those areas with connectivity. I just, this part for me was so fascinating to see how Facebook has taken the data that it's been able to acquire and how they're using it in this way. It certainly wasn't their intention right? They didn't send out, set out to do this in the beginning. But I think it's important to keep this stuff in mind because sometimes we get nervous, right, about the level of data that Facebook is collecting from us. And there are these really great uses of the data that can help in times of crisis and disaster. <sighs> that wraps up my top 10 takeaways from Facebook 2019. I would love, love, love if you hopped over into the free Familypreneur community and shared what you're most excited about from these updates or ask any questions that you may have. Um, I tried to get through this quickly, so I'm sure there are areas where there may still be some questions. So to join the community, it's super easy. You just go to familypreneurcommunity.com and you can join. It's totally free. Again, Thank you for spending time with me today. I hope this was fun and informative, and I hope you are excited about all the changes that are to come. And if you are not already subscribed, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. If you're on YouTube, give us a thumbs up. If you are on a podcast platform, make sure you come back and check out our content every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Monday is all about marketing. So if this Facebook stuff excited you, Mondays are a day you're going to want to stick around. Thank you again so much, and we'll talk soon. Bye. Do us a favor. Share this podcast with a friend who is also building a business and raising a family. It's like my mom always says, sharing is caring. Sharing is caring.